remain seated. We'll open the meeting with a moment of silence. My name is Doug, and I'm an alcoholic. And all of you in the back here, I would like to uh, preface what I say by reminding everyone that anything I say at an AA meeting of any kind is my own opinion. I hope you agree, of course. But if you don't, I haven't drank today, so it works for me. I want to take this opportunity to thank the Southern Conference for asking us, a panel from the North, to participate. I wish we could have come in numbers like you did a month ago to our conference, but we didn't. So uh, we'll have to make it up here. I would like to read from the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book, different parts of it, something that's taken from a preamble that we use at our meeting. It says, you may like this program or you may not, but the fact remains that it works and is our only chance of recovery. There is, however, a vast amount of fun about it all. Some people may be shocked at our seeming worldliness and levity. But just underneath there is a deadly earnestness and a full realization that we must put first things first. With each of us, the first thing is our alcoholic problem. To drink is to die. Faith has to work 24 hours a day in and through us or we perish. Today the panel and I are going to go back to the days when there was no worldliness and no levity. From what we remember of the fear, the frustration, the doubt, and the loneliness which I think are truly the four horsemen of the alcoholics' apocalypse. This is a revelation to us. This is the thing we have to learn about ourselves. This is what we have to rid ourselves of to sustain our sobriety. In the AA Big Book, in the chapter of Vision for You, it mentions four horsemen. These are substantially the same as we're going to talk about today. We have, uh, I think, very good representation from the complete north. And I would like to first call on our present delegate to New York, Bert C. from Medford, to talk to you on fear. Thank you. I was going to follow the leader and start my talk with my name is Bert C. And out the hallway this morning, this is 
got to come closer and make what happened. No. No. Nobody says he's coming. Out in the hallways this morning, I met several people that I know, and they said, they're anonymous chapmen. So right away, I thought, well, I'm going to change it. I'm going to say, my name is Bert Chapman. Now, and I am a recovering alcoholic. Without any reservation. And that's something that I hope and pray I'll never forget. If you don't like me, or you don't like what I say, Please, don't bear any resentments towards Alcoholics Anonymous, because I'm an individual member, and what I say is my own opinion, and not those of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I might also add, not those of my home group, which is met. Uh, I have to explain this good Chapman deal. And maybe when I explain it, you'll recognize my sponsor. But when I was first contacted by AA, by my sponsor, uh, I was trying to make a deal, although I didn't tell him, so nobody would know that I was an alcoholic. And the deal I was trying to make is, it uh, went along something like this. Uh, he was going to call me at a certain time the next day to see how I was doing. And at that time I lived out in the sticks way out in the woods on a forest service party line. And the only fellas on the line were the lookouts and the guards, the fire guards. And I was trying to figure out how the weather's going to be. And will the lookouts be down? Will the fire guard be off? Because this fire, this line was a one, uh, one short, two long line, or two short, one long, you know, for call. And, uh, my sponsor knew what I was getting at, and I wasn't half as smart as I thought I was. And, uh, he got a little bit mad, I guess, because he, Bellard at me. He said, I know what's bothering you. And he said, I'm going out on a limb. He said, I know very well that Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't make any promises. But he said, I'll make a promise to you for Alcoholics Anonymous. And probably I'm breaking a tradition but he said, I'm still going out on the limb. And he said, my promise to you for Alcoholics Anonymous is that they will keep your anonymity just as private as you kept your last drunk. <laughs> and you know something? That promise has been kept. My 
topic today is fear. <coughs> and I was glad when, happy when Doug invited me to come over here and take part on, on this panel and in this discussion. And so I thought, well, I'm going to do things a little different. I'm going to try and give a, an intelligent talk or an intellectual talk. And of course, I went to the dictionary to look up the definition of fear. And I found fear was defined as dread or anxiety. And then I came to the word solicitude. So then I had to go back and look up solicitude. And solicitude says, you find this concern, anxious, or uh, apprehensive. And then I kind of laughed at myself, and, and uh, it made me think of uh, one of the members we had in our group who was a professional man. And he was really bothered and concerned about this word alcoholic. And so he went to the dictionary. He looked up the word alcoholic, and he found alcoholic is a, a uh, dipsomania. Then he looked up dipsomania, and he found dipsomaniac. And then he said, I, I'll settle for an alcoholic. Quit right there, <laughs> and that, that, that's pretty much true. Because when I when I came to solicitude, and I thought, well, uh, Dan, then I I never checked on this, and I checked on it, and it, it's pretty much true. And so when I came to the word solicitude, I thought, well, hell, I can't give an intelligent talk or an intellectual talk. So I quit. Mr. Dictionary, Mr. Webster, right there. Just put it away. And you know, I said my little short serenity prayer, because I was in a hurry to get this done. And my little short serenity prayer is to hell with it. And really, that's a spiritual prayer, because I learned it in church. But I use the long serenity prayer too. When I'm in a hurry, I like the short one. <laughs> we've heard of fear a lot, and we've discussed fear at our meeting. And I, I have taken part in the discussion of fear. Sometimes now I wonder if I knew what I was talking about. I did a little research, but most of these are my own opinion. And I used to say that my AA has been stolen from some other AA. Now I'm getting a little bit more honest, and I 
say now that my AA was given to by other AAs, my AA program, that is. And so what I say today is something that has been given to me, my own opinion. And of course that AA that has been given to me is not original with me. But I'm this fear. <laughs> I believe that the AA program is not founded on fear. And therefore, that's what made it. That's just what made me say a little while ago that I, when I'm taking part in these discussions on uh, uh, fear in our AA group meetings and so on and so forth, I realized not probably I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> and I believe now that the AA program is, is like I said, not founded on fear, but founded on the antidote of fear, which is faith. And so, I, I looked on our program, and I didn't have a program until I got here, and I found no one is really scheduled to discuss faith, and I was a little bit concerned when I put faith in here that maybe most of my talk would be on faith instead of fear, and maybe I'd be stepping on someone's toes, and I was glad when I found out nobody really had faith as a topic for discussion. <coughs> but I still think that fear was a great part of my life, or a big part of my life, rather, in, in keeping me as a practicing alcoholic, I think probably I was afraid to sober up. I was one of those alcoholics that drank every day. And I was had myself fairly well convinced that without alcohol I'd die. I couldn't live without alcohol. I had my wife fairly well convinced that I had to have a bottle in the house in case I had a heart attack. And I was really afraid to sober up, and I think fear kept me drinking for a long, long time. Fear of going without alcohol kept me drinking. Uh, fear of sobering up, as I said. Sobering up and facing the problems that have been caused by my drinking. And fear mostly of this new way of life. That wasn't really for me. For me. And I also was afraid of all of the lies to sober up because I didn't want to face all of these lies that I had told people and uh, face all of the people that I had harmed. So I, I actually think that if there was any fear in any part of my AA program that was while I was a practicing alcoholic. <coughs> I was afraid to go to my first meeting because I had been contacted by AA six months before I went to my first meeting. And believe me, 
few sober moments I had in those six months before going to my first meeting. I, I was uh, thinking of AA, but I was afraid of AA. I, maybe fear kept me away from AA those six months. And finally, I, I didn't have any control of my fear anymore because I was finally hospitalized. And from the hospital, I went to my first meeting. And after the meeting was over, I had to go back to the hospital and spend another five days. And so, from that, you can gather what what kind of a meeting, what kind of condition I was in at my first meeting. And believe me, I was afraid. And I was shaking too, of course. And to get back to fear again, I think mostly, I'm talking about one alcoholic that I know, and that's Chapman. I'm not talking about anyone else but Chapman. I think maybe when I talk about fear at our group discussions, group meetings, I was associating fear with cowardice. And I think maybe that's why I had the wrong misinterpretation of fear. Because I used to say all the time that fear didn't keep me sober. And I was thinking of fear along the lines of cowardice. And I wasn't a coward, not uh, especially when I was full of whiskey.
told me if you don't use it, you will never get any more. You will always have but a little bit. And he also told me, the more you use it, the more your faith will grow. That made sense to me after I got rid of some of my things. And I started out doing that. And I found that to be very true. And I suppose maybe if I, if this man had told me that, maybe I'd have went along for a long time thinking I don't have any faith. And probably I had fear. And like I said, I'm not sure because I was mixed up. But anyhow, after he told me that, I thought, well, maybe he's right. And so then, I started using, using what little bit, a bit of faith I thought I had. And I was surprised he was right. And the more I used that faith, the more my faith seemed to grow. And as of today and as of this very minute, it seems to me, I've always had enough of faith since I started using it to meet any problems that has come up. And believe me, I'm going to continue using my faith to overcome any fear I might have. In the big book there on page 101, and I'm going to quote just a part of it. It says, In our belief, any scheme of combating alcoholism which proposes to shield the sick man from temptation is doomed to fail. It goes down to say, if the alcoholic tries to shield himself, he may succeed for a while, but generally winds up with a bigger explosion than ever. And you know, right after I heard this man explaining to me about faith and use what little faith you have, get more. I ran across that in a big book one day while I was reading it. And, and uh, I realized then that I was shielding myself, myself from alcoholism. And maybe it was fear that was shielding me from it. And I put the uh, uh, fear in the place of temptation. And when I started using my faith, that came very easy to me. I mean, I didn't have to shield myself anymore from alcoholism or the fear of alcoholism, but the big book says the temptation of alcoholism, and I substituted fear for the word temptation like I explained. And then things seemed to perk up a lot. They really perked up fast. Because I had faith. After I put fear in there, that faith came. And then I had faith and faith in Chapman. Faith in the power greater than myself and my choose to call, uh, call God. And faith in the AA program. Seems to grow by practicing 
these principles in all of our affairs, or all of my affairs. In other words, by practicing the AA philosophy, the AA steps, and even some of the AA gimmicks. And it seems to me, the more I practice them, the more faith I have, and the less fear I have. <coughs> I noticed on the first panel there was some mention made of fear, and I, like I said, I, I did a little research work on it when I found out I was on this panel, and this is the way I interpret fear, and I just use faith to replace fear as I've said so many times. And it works for me, and it continues to work for me as long as I practice these principles in all of my affairs. And with that, I want to thank God for asking me to be on this panel. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bert. I told you before Bert talked, <coughs> Bert is our delegate to New York for the next two years, and uh, I'm sure we're going to be well represented. The next speaker on our panel, I'm going to get into a little corner here eventually with uh, my friend over here, but uh, I must give some credit where credit's due. The next speaker is our former delegate, just finished his two-year term, and I think one of the hardest working men in AA in northeastern Wisconsin, he has been for many years, and during his two years in office, newly due to his work, we have a very strong intergroup, we have a very strong association with the groups in New York the groups through GSRs and New York, and uh, as we say in the Fox Valley, it's just a hell of an AA. I'd like to introduce Bob C. from Green Bay. My name is Bob C., and I am an alcoholic. My life has become unmanageable. Uh, I don't care if you know my last name, but you wouldn't remember it anyhow. It's Sickner. Sickner, if you really want to pronounce it the German way. But, uh, my topic is on frustration. And boy, that's a wonderful topic for me, because I was the most frustrated person you ever did see until I came to this AD program. Now, I imagine many of you people have been frustrated at one time or another. Now, this is my own opinions on what frustration is, and if you don't go along with it, it's fine, but it's the way I believe it. I believe frustration is something that is caused by our own doing, or by other people, or by things 
Uh, it could be your wife. It could be your boss. Uh, it could be things that you do yourself. Now, I uh, was a little frustrated last night. And this is just a case in point. Uh, I came down to the scene expecting to drive right up to the motel and get a room. And uh, I drove from here to there and yonder. I know this sounds pretty good now. And I finally ended up out on the highway on the way to Chicago, and I got a motel room. And I was a little bit frustrated, but whose fault was it? Why didn't I call ahead for reservation? It's kind of like the story of the Irishman that went down to the corner tavern. I don't know why they call them corner tavern. Some of them go in the middle of the block. I used to go all over. But anyhow, he goes down and he gets pretty well organized. And when he comes out, it's raining awful hard. It's muddy and a dirty night. And on his way home, he happened to stumble into an excavation where they were laying the sewer or water line or something. And it was a pretty deep tumble. And he got pretty well banged up. Broke a few bones, a few internal injuries. And he's laying down there in this mud in about six inches of water. Somebody happened by and heard his cries for help and said, what uh, can we do for you? Well, he said, the first thing you do, uh, uh, give me a priest. I mean, a rabbi. So the guy uh, sends for a rabbi, and then, of course, he sends for an ambulance. So pretty soon the rabbi comes, and they get a ladder, and he crawls down in this trench, and uh, looks at the guy, and he says, uh, is there anything I can do for you? Yes, he says, I am in pretty bad shape. He says, uh, I wonder if you would give me the last rites. And the rabbi looked at him and he says, well, uh, I, I don't think uh, you have the right fellow. He says, I, I think you should have called for a priest. He says, what? Call for a priest on a, get him out on a night like this? So I imagine this rabbi was a little frustrated. But we can do something about this frustration. One of the things I think we have to do is to examine ourselves and know our own abilities. Know what we can do and what we can't do. I think maybe many of us set too high a goal for ourselves. And we cannot reach it. And we are frustrated. See, actually frustration is when we plan for a certain goal or we expect a certain thing to happen. And we get almost to that point and something comes along and we're defeated in our purpose. And we're frustrated. In other words, it's, it's a defeat of what we expect. And we're going to get that a lot through life. We'll plan a certain thing maybe for weeks. And when the time is almost there, something happens. And it isn't fulfilled and we're frustrated. So we have to learn to accept these things. One of the things uh, frustration will do, it will cause anxiety. And of course anxiety is a means of bettering ourselves. If we're anxious about something, we're going to do something about it. It's probably uh, the same as in our dreams. We were often frustrated. We tried to control this alcohol, and we couldn't. And we were frustrated. And finally, we got anxious about it. Uh, we were worried about it. Till so 
finally, we've done something wrong. So anxiety is actually a means of setting people to do something about this problem. So in this frustration, take it out and examine it. Is, uh, is it something you caused? Is it something somebody else caused? I know a lot of them get awful frustrated when their anonymity is broken. And of course, like Bert said, it's going to happen. So, the thing we have to do is have to accept these And not let them bother us too much. It's going to bother us. But keep the, uh, don't keep thinking about it. See, there are many ways of uh, solving this frustration. Uh, kind of, for an example, it was a Baptist farmer. And of course, Baptists are very devout, very religious. They don't drink or swear or uh, get mad or anything. They're supposed to be even-tempered. And it so happens this Baptist farmer had a kind of an ornery cow. And uh, one night while he was milking his cow, kicks him, knocks him off the stool into the gutter. He gets up and he walks back and forth. And I imagine he was frustrated, but he says, well, I don't get mad and I don't swear. I don't get mad and I don't swear. And he picks up his stool, he sits back down, starts melting, and bang, he clobbers him again. Well, now I imagine his frustration was mounting about this time. But he got up and he slowly walked back and forth and says, I don't get mad and I don't swear. I don't get mad, and I don't swear. And he picks his stool up that sets down again, just about gets finished, and bang, he gets it again. Well, now imagine this time he was really frustrated, but he knew what to do about it. He picks himself up, walks around to the front of the cow, and he looks at her. He says, I don't get mad, and I don't swear, but I have a Catholic friend up the road, and I'm going to sell you to him, and he's going to kick the H out of you. So, there's some ways of getting over your frustration. You have the answer. But I think the main thing for an alcoholic is to take it easy. Remember your ability, what you can do. Do not set too high a goal and be disappointed. As we all know, uh, a lot of us were probably inspired to be a great artist. And we, we can't do it. My ambition was always to be a millionaire. And I know I'll never make it. And sure, it used to frustrate me. It used to bother me. But I learned to accept that fact that I'm not going to be a millionaire. There are some things that you can do about frustration, as in the case of our drink. I was frustrated about my drinking because I couldn't handle it. And I didn't know why. So, I found out from me that I was an alcoholic and that I had a disease and that the only thing I could do was join this program that I could get arrested, that I never could go back to being a social drinker and throw my drinking again. So I had to accept that fact. And that frustration was gone. I put it away from me because I accepted the fact that I was an alcoholic and there was nothing I could do about it. So why be frustrated about it? Forget it. There isn't a thing you can do. So in your problems that come up, maybe in some cases you can change people that frustrate you. Maybe in the case of your wife, which I don't know if you can or not. I haven't tried too hard. But 
maybe there are things that uh, your wife does that bug you and frustrate you. Maybe you can, in a roundabout way, get her to change. But if you can't, accept it. You've lived with it before. But just don't think about it too much. Don't, don't make a big issue of it. It's one of the things we have to live with. Same as we have to live with our alcoholism. If you keep thinking of all the good times you used to have, and why so-and-so can go out and drink and go about his business, and keep that in your mind all the time, uh, it's going to really bug you, and you're going to be frustrated because you can't do it. So why keep thinking about it? Forget it. Accept the fact that you're an alcoholic. It's awful hard to do. That first step, I think, is for an alcoholic, it's one of the hardest things he's done in his life. But, until you do, you aren't going to get the peace and contentment and get rid of these frustrations. One thing that this program does, it teaches us how to live. I don't believe I ever knew how to live until I came to this program. I couldn't accept that. Many things are going to happen to us that we don't know the reason why. And we're just going to have to learn to accept it. And this program has taught me. And I'm very thankful for it. Because when things would happen that I didn't think were right, I was frustrated. I was mad. I was resentful. But I learned now that there are things that's going to happen I have no control over. Except I get frustrated about it. Because there isn't anything I can do about it. Even if I am anxious about it, I still can't improve it. I can't change it. So I have to accept it. So that's why, if you have a lot of these frustrations, just think of that serenity prayer. Accept the things you cannot change. Change the things that you can or try to do. And have the wisdom to know that. Thank you. I know something about the frustration that uh, Bob is talking about. I thought that the proper thing for me to do this afternoon would be that after each one of the fellows on the panel talked on his topic, I should get up and say something profound. And uh, they haven't left anything for me to add. And uh, I don't know if I'm frustrated, but I'm a little griped. The next man on our panel is a drinking friend and an AA friend. Paul and I grew up in Oshkosh, that's in Wisconsin, where they make overalls. I joke, I joke about that because for the first couple of years that I was in the Navy, everybody I would tell that I was from Oshkosh, they'd laugh. And if they didn't laugh, they'd say, what is it, or where is it, or something. So I started saying I was from Milwaukee, a little north of Milwaukee, or a little south of Green Bay. And uh, it worked pretty good. Uh, Paul and I drank in the same bar for many years in Oshkosh. And Paul was trying to be helpful to me. He would advise me that I should stop my drinking because I was going to get in trouble. I was in trouble. 
And, uh, of course, I didn't have enough presence of mind to know that Paul was in trouble also. But one night, a few years ago, somebody in our group, unbeknownst to me, got called to talk in one of our meetings. And I walked in. And I don't think either one of us wanted to say why we were there. But, uh, it's been a wonderful, renewed relationship. And I would like now to call on Paul Katz from Nina, Wisconsin. further 
find out or minimize the doubt that you have. But I think that if you eliminate doubt completely, 100%, you're going to have this program, as we call it, made. And you can't do that. You have to keep exploring it on a daily basis. You have to keep doing step number 11. You have to go back over to step number 1. You can't say that there's no doubt in my mind that I have this program knocked. Because if you do this, then you have eliminated the doubt of the thing. The mystery that the AA program has given me. I can't conceive of myself the first six months that I was on this program saying that I'm never going to take a drink again or on and on. This just applies to this. I was going through step number four. And I was making out a list and I got to a certain few things and I said, I'll doubt if I'll put those down because I don't want to get those. I doubt it. The program says we do the best that we can. So I can't doubt it, and yet I can't overdo this thing the other way. As we grow in the program, doubt decreases. I think it's an increase in confidence and a decrease in doubt. And by that I mean, uh, let's take a child for an as compared to us as adults. I think that a child has no limitations. He doesn't know his limitations. That's why they can do a lot of things way beyond their capabilities. I have a, eight, a nine-year-old son who is a uh, fair student in English and uh, social studies and everything, but he's an, uh, almost a sophomore in high school in mathematics because he doesn't know he has to stop at the fourth grade. And he just goes out. And, uh, but if I were to stay, go to school now and be in college again and, at the senior level, and somebody would say, here's your math course, and you can go on and become a doctorate, Without even knowing it, you say, well, I doubt that I have the capabilities of doing that. So we as adults must work within our limitations. We have to know exactly what level we want to put this program on or any other thing that we try to accomplish. Because if we can set ourselves a goal by which to work, we can eliminate or minimize the doubt that it's going to succeed by not getting all kept up and worried over something that we know or actually feel we can never do. That's why it's very important to keep this program simple. It minimizes the doubt that it can work for you. And doubt is a horrible thing, actually, because it, uh, it, it breeds failure. You doubt that you can do something. Chances are that you're not going to do it, or do it successfully, or to do it to any degree at all. So we have to Minimize doubt as much as possible as within our limitations. And you can do this by limiting yourself. I could come this, I could take this program that we're working, that I'm working today to the best of my ability and say, now I'm going to expand in my knowledge of this program and I'm going to go out and grab a flag and I'm going to become the messiah for this group. And I'd probably end up down in the middle of the bar, middle of the street saloon. But I think I have the cap- my capabilities generalized on this program to the point where I know what I have to do to stay sober today. And it's just following the 12 steps, working them, making them become a way of life for me. There's no doubt in my mind that if I follow those 12 steps today, that I'm not going to drink until midnight. If I can do this as simply and as honestly and as doubt-free, Possible. And we'll let tomorrow take care of itself because tomorrow has, I've never been in tomorrow. 
I've never made it yet. But if I can minimize the doubts that I have, and I have them every day. There are days I was in Eau Claire, uh, Wednesday and Thursday and Friday for a convention. There's a bar full of people. Uh, there are two different conventions going on there. And if I, uh, I look at these people having a ball and I just say, here I am. Five years ago. Uh, why couldn't I do this for one day? I was snowbound in Iowa a year ago, right last month. In a situation an alcoholic dreams of. Joe knows. I was working for the same company he was. Unlimited expense account. Can't get out of there for five days. And I'm sitting right on top of a saloon. But you have to know your limitations. You doubt whether if you do this thing, if you, if the word doubt comes in there, I doubt if my wife will find out about it. I doubt if somebody is, you can't let this happen. You have to know your limitations and know what you want to get out of this program. And if you eliminate or minimize, if you minimize the doubt, have about any one of the 12 steps or anything that you have to do to stay sober. The chances of your staying sober are much better. A strong doubt gives me an avenue to escape. I can pick out any one of the 12 steps or any part of one of the 12 steps and doubt it very seriously in my own mind and build up this doubt on a daily basis until maybe a year from now or two years from now, who knows? I can grab hold that doubt and run. But if I have minimized it, kept it down and built it up through faith, build up the strength against that doubt, my chances of overcoming that obstacle at time are greater. But the person can use grabbing hold of a doubt or the building up of a doubt as an avenue sometime in the future. We have to watch this. We have to minimize the word doubt or the implication of doubt into the AA program. We have to analyze the 12 steps <coughs> as to what I have to do and how I can apply these 12 steps to my, 12 steps to my life as easily and simply as possible, so as to minimize the results. Every AA man that I've seen a woman that's happy keeps this program simple. We have a fellow that came to our group, and Dina, uh, he was there when I got there, almost four years ago, three and a half, four years ago. And he got involved in step number three, and all of a sudden he started to think that he was carrying the cross down College Avenue in Apple. And uh, this guy started reading books way beyond his comprehension, and he ends up flat on his hands. And he's been sitting there wondering why guys like Doug and I, who are mentally inferior to him, he says, can make this program when a great brain like him can't get it, because he had put this word doubt. He doubts that step number three is applied to him. He doubts the fact that he has not got the capability to conquer step three as far as he wants to. He hasn't put the cap on step three. Here's as far as I go with this thing, and uh, this is going to keep me sober. He goes way beyond this thing, starts carrying the flag on the cross, and he starts thinking. And he created himself a situation where he doubted the ability of step three to help him stay sober. So I say again, if we can minimize doubt, take a lot of things for granted. I had to do that when I came to the program. I think that one of the best ways of getting rid of doubt is to just take things for granted. Pat Key from Apple told me this when I was on the program for two weeks. He said it has worked for 500,000, approximately 500,000 people because they have the faith that these 12 steps can keep them sober. Whether they can argue any one of the 12 steps is fine, but they have the faith 
that they are going to keep him sober. Keep him sober. And I had to apply this to myself. I had to eliminate doubt and accept the fact that there was a power greater than myself. I never was a church lawyer, and I'm not a great church lawyer today. But I have faith in the power greater than myself because it tells me in the book that I must. And uh, I have faith in step number four, by the fact that if I do a step number four, the rest of my ability is going to keep so And on down the line through the 12 steps. I accept them. They work for you people. If they can work for me, they'll, for you, they'll work for me. It's as simple as that. So that there, why I've, I've eliminated the doubt by accepting the fact that these 12 steps have worked for so many people and they work for me. But I've eliminated the doubt. Thank you. I think if I ever get the opportunity to get a panel together again, we'll have a some kind of an agreement that we sign that we won't question the moderator's mental capability. <laughs> I was thinking while he was standing up here talking about that, I think I finally figured out why he was never an All-American when he played football in Minnesota. With the hands like this, he was dropping the ball. Mosio again and uh, as uh, Jerry mentioned there that he uh, put that last speaker of the four horsemen on the other side of the tape so that will leave it a blank spot here on this side and uh, it will run to about 772 uh, on my, uh, recorder, it's from 690 to 772. I don't know whether I'll be able to talk to you all that time or not. But, uh, I'm checking this side two of this tape here. So far it sounds pretty good. Yev is coming out very clear on track two. 
below this. And I don't know exactly where I got this uh, Lynn Carroll. I don't know whether he's after this here or whether he's on track two. But I remember when I was making making up this copy for you that when I got the copy off of him, it was on both of the tracks, or was, I forgot exactly how it was, he put it on one track, it didn't finish, so he put it on another track, so I would get the whole talk on one track instead of, uh, as he did it, but he forgot to erase that, so what I'll have to do is find out exactly how this works and uh, erase that track. And uh, leave that good one there for you. Uh, having nice weather here in Chicago. About 70 degrees. Didn't have too much rain. If uh, you're intending to go to that Madison conference, I, I doubt if you will because you've mentioned so much about you going running around month September and maybe October you won't be able to get up there but uh, I'll drop your line but I think you might be getting all them tapes from Dan Olson so I won't give you any of them I could give you the Rockford Conference or got other tapes now that it's getting a little cooler won't be running around too much. Want to stay around the house a little more. And be able to catch up on some of these uh, talks that old people are and exchanging. Incidentally, uh, would like to put on this here uh, little shorty tape I got from Paul Arondash. Works for. Uh, the Garen at Chichet Farms in Pennsylvania. Got this, oh, I don't know when, about six months ago or so off of him. Got some music in the background and he more or less talks to it. I think you'll like it. I don't know whether you exchange with him or not. But he's another guy that exchanges tapes with Anton Stark. And I owe him, uh, tape for oh, a long time there. The last tape I sent him is one tape that uh, boss was made up by his boss, I mean Dick Karen, who uh, talked in Iowa. I was at that conference there. And uh, incidentally, I just thought of it now, you mentioned something about doing some prison work. I've been, I've got quite a few tapes from uh, a friend of mine by the name of Tiny Enfield. His real name is Cleo, but they call him Tiny. He's a outside sponsor in the Fort Madison, Iowa Penitentiary. There, been up there a couple times, and he. Sent me quite a few good tapes that uh, 
you're interested in something like that, I could send you some of those. One thing about these tapes over there that they don't use that everyday language that the people on the outside use. So uh, I do give you some of them that have to be more or less careful when you play them because uh, jokes in the language isn't uh, for every everybody to hear. But you can let me know about that. I see we're getting close to this year, 766. It starts at 770, so I better shut this off and, uh, uh, I'll talk to you a little more later on or on the other track. Bye for now. This is site number two. Track number four. We are at Racine, Wisconsin at the 15th Annual Spring Conference of the Southern Wisconsin Area of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're setting in a panel discussion entitled The Four Horsemen. We have listed on side one, track one, to the subject of fear, frustration, and doubt. From the subject of loneliness, we will I'll be introduced to Al G. of Iron Mountain, Michigan. Our next speaker is uh, very familiar to all you folks in the southern area. He was your main speaker two years ago. I believe on Lover's Lane Road or somewhere outside of town. Also his wife, of course, Ruth. And uh, we were talking before. Somebody called me yesterday about asking me what time I, if I was going to be busy after the conference or something. And they said, what time do the four horsemen ride? <laughs> uh, we were discussing there are some people who believe that where Al's from in upper northern Michigan, they still use horses. In fact, uh, Billy said, Bob's wife said before the meeting, don't say it. So, uh, with that, I'll turn you over to Al G. from Iron Mountain, Michigan. Thank you, Doug. I wasn't sure uh, as to what Doug might say in the way of an introduction. Knowing his background, being familiar with the fact that he was a, a good Irishman, I wasn't sure when the Barney was going to stop and the honesty would begin. I'm happy to be with you. I'm grateful for the opportunity to come down to southern Wisconsin again to attend one of your fine conferences. We had a wonderful ride down yesterday, a beautiful drive, and you know, the, the trip passed so fast. When we crossed Left Foot Creek, I suddenly became aware of the fact that we were crossing that parallel which divides the globe, a midpoint between the North Pole and the equator. <laughs> 
myself. Golly, I didn't know we'd gone that far. Following these wonderful guys on this panel today creates quite a problem for me. I, I, I was thinking a moment ago uh, about this guy Daniel, you know, when he when he approached the lion's den. Following these fellows, I thought about Daniel because I thought perhaps he probably said, I'd rather be the after-dinner speaker. 